how can you be part of a religious community that straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers i would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most vocal political voice against some churches still the one they claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church end up going to hell? Like, how is that actually good? It seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical than they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today our guest is Jason Adam Miller. Now, I'm going to read the bio that he has on his website, but because it's written in the first person, I'm going to read it in the first person. And then, so this is what he said on his own website, and then I'm going to say something about him too. So on his website, he writes, I'm a pastor who never quite felt at home in church. An artist who figured out the sermon is his song, and a teacher who still has some questions. I studied theology in the graduate school at the University of Notre Dame. I follow Jesus with a community I founded called South Bend City Church, and leading it with my teammates is the most beautiful, meaningful thing I've ever been a part of. When I'm not in South Bend, you'll probably find me in Nashville cheering for my friends in a small rock venue in Chicago for a band you've never heard of, or traveling somewhere far away to see what I can learn and bring home. Now, here's what I would say. From me, from a distance, I see what people are doing, even if it's just in glimpses, and even if it's just in fragments, even if it's just fractions of their work, you know, the things people are writing, the things people are saying, how people are leading, the heart and the spirit of the communities they're a part of, or in Jason's case, has co-founded and continues to lead. And as a person who loves and cares about the church and wants to continue to serve the church, even in my own unique journey of post-congregational life right now as a lead pastor, there's certain glimpses I get from a distance where I'm like, that's good. That's beautiful. That's something I want to be a part of. That's something I want to help support. That's what I'm cheering on. That's these are these are lights that I believe are guiding more of the church towards the future, not only through what they're saying, but from them actually doing it, like etching out new grooves into the future through the work itself. And there's not a lot of those, to be honest, for me personally, for whatever those reasons are, but from a distance, Jason personally, and especially with his connection with his church is one of those people and lights I've seen where I'm like, okay, I'm paying attention to that. So that's how I first came across him. You heard his bio, um, still leading and pastoring South Bend City Church and has a book coming out <clears throat> that he will be, probably when this comes out, he may have just announced it. So the release date will be connected with his work. And it's called When the World Breaks. And is there a subtitle for that? Oh, that's so funny. Uh, let me find it. <laughs> I didn't get the subtitle I wanted. Um <laughs> That's publishing for you, right? The subtitle I wanted, you know, I'm just going to go with that one, is uh, Suffering, Hope, and the Paradoxes that Put Us Back Together. Mm. Mm. And do you know what's the one you got? Do you have that uh, one available? right here. The Surprising Hope and Subversive Promises in the Teachings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Both great. So when the world breaks, um, when this comes out, you will know through what he's through what he's sharing when it'll be out. 
it'll be out in the summer sometime. So yeah, let's stop there as we begin. Jason, man, it's great to be here with you, man. Hey, thanks for having you me, taking man. the time. Yeah, it's good seeing you. We we got to hang in Denver in October, and it's good seeing your face again, man. Yeah, that, it's crazy to think like when we see each other, it's you know five months. Yeah, goes yeah. by. Like yeah. have you know as you get older, you're like six months goes by. It's like we just saw each other. I was like, yeah, that's right. To go. Yeah, that's that's uh that's also the case when your friends live in Hawaii and you live in South Bend, Indiana. That, that tends to be the case too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I first reached out to you. And it's good timing. I reached out to you because I just had this idea where I want to start talking more and more to pastors and clergy and people who are really on the ground, not just talking about the tradition of faith that we're a part of, not just talking about the way of Jesus through the writing, but who are still and continue to embody and lead and to do that kind of important, critical, unmatched work of actually living the way of Jesus with and for the sake of others. And then I didn't know that, you know, this kind of lines up with when you're first going to announce. So it's awesome. It's great yeah. to be here to do both, yeah. but let's start. Um, let's talk about journeys. You know, I, I love that word journey because no matter how there's certain cliches, I'm like, I will never let go of them because they're real. Yeah, they work. Like, they're cliches for a reason. Seasons is a word I will never let go of. I don't care how evangelical he is. I don't care. That to me is because communities, relationships, individuals, we really go through seasons in life. And, you know, if, if we could zoom out a bit, right, and magnify a few defining moments on your journey, you know, the seasons for you, like what would they be? Right. It's not the pressure to tell your whole story, yeah, yeah, but you're sure. like, here's a couple zoomed out moments. This defining decision, this thing right here has helped makes a little bit of sense of what I'm saying. Right. It's, it's this, it's the journey of what I'm saying is coming out of this. So what are a few of those that kind of help get us here? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in, in church, um, and I'm kind of bookish. And I was a young adolescent when I took seriously what I heard around me, which is like, oh, we trust the Bible. We read the Bible. And I remember reading it for myself and being like, have you all actually read this thing? Because hmm. like cover to cover, it doesn't seem to be what, quite the book you, you're talking about, you know, or it doesn't seem to work the way you thought. So I think pretty early for me, while I was having some really beautiful sort of coming of age experiences of God, I was also having some pretty kind of typical questions about whether the, you know, the particular form or paradigm that I was inheriting really added up. Mm. Um, at the end of high school, another real marker for me growing up and living in, you know, fairly conservative uh, Midwestern churches is my brother who's two years older uh, came out uh, as a gay man. Mm. And of course, um, inside that ecosystem, you know, the disruption of that was really dramatic. Mm. Um, I also, right around the same time that happened with my brother, I had a, I kind of got flooded with um, some memories of childhood trauma that had been uh, repressed for, you know, most of my years. Interesting. And that kind of, yeah, sent me on a kind of four-year journey in, in depression that ended up with me hospitalizing myself for wow. uh, about a week and a half when I was like 23, mm. 22. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So college was fraught for me, man. Um, my bro, you know, my brother's kind of working. Did you stay, stuff. did you stay close by to the fam and to that world? Like for college? I did. Yeah. And actually that's one of the reasons I think I was going to go farther away. And then with all this disruption in my senior year of high school, going away to a big state school, it, it all of a sudden felt kind of unsafe to me. 
Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going to kind of a small private Christian school that's seven miles from my parents' house where they still live today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the other, so, so there, there's a lot of um, sort of personal encounter with some of that trauma and also like theologically trying to figure out, you know, um, how to integrate my brother's experience and, and what mm-hmm. that meant and take that seriously. Um, the other like real kind of the other, the other part of this sort of spectrum was uh, 2010 was my first trip to Israel-Palestine Mm. Uh, where a friend of mine said, Hey, you want to go learn about conflict? And I thought, wow, that's, um, not the, the pilgrimage I thought I was going to have the first time I went to that place. You're always thinking about just like going to Hawaii to like try to learn how to surf or something. I was trying to keep it more mellow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But man, like my, my faith fell into pieces when I went over there and saw what's happening, um, to Palestinians under occupation and, you know, and holding space as well for, um, the historical experiences of Israeli Jews and mm. um, like my faith died and got reborn in the West wow. Bank. And um, so, you know, whether it's, so there's me, you know, reading the Bible being like, I don't think this is the book you all say it is, or my brother's experience as a gay man, or um, going over there and being like, man, the faith I have has nothing to say to us in a world where, you know, military occupation happens and where anti-Arab racism gets sort of channeled through American foreign policy. And, mm-hmm. um, and then I, like the one other big piece I'd say is um, around that time I went to grad school at Notre Dame, which for a kid who grew up in small conservative evangelical churches, it was really, really um, amazing and surprising and disruptive to um, study theology uh, in sort of a, a larger environment, mm. ideologically or theologically, historically. You're all, look, you're all, look, I'm not going that far away geographically, <laughs> but I'm going very far away That's theologically. Right. <laughs> That's what that was, man. Theologically, it was a long That's journey. Awesome. Yeah. So all that's kind of in the mix for me today and um, wow. how I'm trying to work it out in my own life and then what we're trying to do as a church. Mm, that's so interesting. I love that because, you know, we had connected briefly, just exchanged a couple messages. We meet in person. You get a limited amount of time. I'm always like, I love, I love people. I love stories. I'm just so, I just am fascinated. I could listen to people's stories forever. You know, that was always something for me pastorally is like, I really love the details of people's stories. And even just that, you know, which to me even makes more sense without you even explaining it, the title of your book. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like we have that when the world breaks, that can, the catalyst for that in our lives can be so unique, contingent upon our social location, circumstances, et cetera. Everything. It could be global. It could be very personal. It could be both. Like from what you're saying, you know, it's That's like right. global, right. you know, right. geopolitical conflict and stuff at home. You're That's like... Right. Why is every pillar I've ever had holding things up not working and what's going on? But yeah, that's exactly how do you. So before you get to South Bend City. In the midst of that, what are those rays of light that are helping you see further into the future? What are the relationships what are the things you're reading what are the social religious spaces you're a part of that are sort of not only giving you a light to the future but helping the healing and putting you back together along the way how does that because you would assume a certain degree of healing and integration that would lead you towards the kind of commitment that a pastor makes to this tradition and to the church Uh, that's a good question yeah i mean i think my life was graced with some um some real healing presences from a lot of people. Um, I, you know, I kept my parents on that list. Um, mm, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I worked before South and city. I spent, uh, I guess 14 years working, a, a, a kind of a large church in the area 
And um, there too, some of the pastors who were older than me, um, and I'll never forget, I think the first person who visited me in the psychiatric hospital uh, was a friend of mine named Mark Waltz, who was a pastor at that church at the time. And, um, you know, there, I know there's a lot that we can critique and, and a lot of important things that could be said about like mega churches, the way they operate or whatever, or whatever. I will say like, um, I mean, that, that church was a, they didn't blink when I hospitalized myself. They just showed up in love and then they, they offered to take me from being an intern to a full-time job the week I got out of the hospital. There was no stigma there. There was no, like nothing about that experience for them made me like untouchable. And I think knowing how much mental health gets stigmatized, that's kind of surprising. But I think that that church was a real healing environment for me. Um, Also the undergrad school that I went to, um, which I I was still at when I hospitalized myself, um, a place called Bethel college uh, there too, man, it was deeply pastoral. And there were people there who, you know, they were acquainted with some of the kind of healing streams of Christian faith, whether it's a guy like Henry Nowen that you're talking about, or others who like are able to kind of lead you into some of that deeper work with a lot of mm-hmm. kindness. Um, yeah, I think really at every step there, at every step, there was somebody within arm's reach mm-hmm. wow. who saw me really well, loved me and was conversant enough in like the, the deeper streams of our faith that they were to kind of help me turn toward those without it being like prescriptive or like, you know, a way of bypassing what was happening. It's like, no, we, we actually got a faith that can help you go through all of that rather than try to get around it. Mm. And um, I'm really thankful for those people. And I think that's where a lot of my commitment today, I mean, there's a, there's a million reasons I'm committed to this today, but one of them is that um, I think the kind of healing resources that we need are the ones that you're not going to access at the surface layer of a tradition, but you know, the, the real healing resources live deep inside that tradition. Mm. And I think um, for churches to be a place where people actually are kind of ushered into those deep resources is um, really meaningful work to be doing in the world that we're living in right now. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I love <clears throat> the answer connected with connection. Yes. Proximity, presence, relational healing. Cause when our beliefs fail us or when our beliefs change, it's, it's difficult, you know, when the world breaks, even theologically for people, it's hard to put all that together. That's right. But when the relationships and the presence, and when you discover that this faith truly is embodied, not only by us and through us, but also by others and through others. And to me, that's one of the most powerful things is me telling people, you know, when we're holding hands and praying or you're laying on hands or whatever it is, like those types of things, like I would say when we would hold hands and pray, I'm like, the spirit of God doesn't just show up through you. It shows up as you. Oh, wow. That is the body of Christ. That's that's the incarnation right there. That's a great gift to be able to do that for each other. Now I'm going to jump ahead into a question I was probably going to ask later since I think it we're speaking to it right now. The hope is so often such an embodied and experiential and relational thing. You know, like Daniel Berrigan, I got to love the Berrigan brothers, the radical priests of the 60s for people who haven't heard of them. They're just anti-war protesters breaking into government buildings, burning draft papers. These were like my heroes when I was younger. They're like, to me, I'm like, wanted by the FBI. I'm like, when I was in my 20s, I'm like, so I can be a Christian too. I'm like, this all, this makes sense to me. And at the end of Daniel Berrigan's life, I think it was Friar John Deere, who's also a very well-known peace activist, asked Daniel Berrigan, like, what brings you hope? 
because Daniel Berrigan was like, man, our the peace movement of the 60s, he's like pretty much fell apart and we're in an all out culture of war now in the US. You know, he's like where we thought this was going yeah. in that cultural moment didn't become that. And all these things that he thought perhaps were going here didn't. So he's living with a lot of this didn't go where I thought it was. And so when when Friar John Deere asked him, like, how do you stay hopeful? He said, by, by doing hopeful things. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like yeah. by being in places where you taste, touch and feel resurrection energy. Yeah. And to be honest, when I was in my 20s and I heard that story, that's not the answer I wanted mm. because I was reading and thinking and trying to figure out everything in my mind you know that's the that's the curse of the enneagram five is like if i just read one more book everything will click and i will feel whole you know your your mind believes you can figure that all out in your head and the simplicity of how do you have hope is by doing hopeful things like as someone like yourself who of course has your critiques like you said you have a vision beyond conventions that we're used to of the church how does that story resonate with you personally and also or what does that story have to say to so many people who are growing and evolving but struggling to feel the connection that you had with people like how does it speak to them to keep going in their intellectual journeys but also to remain hopeful you know how do how do we do that yeah it's funny i feel as you as you share that story and what Bergen said, I I, I almost feel of two minds about it. On the one hand, I think um, I'm, I realize as you as you share that, I'm like, yeah, that that is at least for me. I think what keeps me doing the work I'm doing because I think um, I realized at some point, like as an Enneagram Five, that kind of a head type. Um, you know, the the danger for a guy like me is that it's purely theoretical, mm. and I think the problem with that is even if your brain feels satisfied, your heart knows you've, you've not put your life into it. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the kind of hope that you get from feeling like you've got the intellectual furniture arranged properly is a really fragile hope. Uh, or maybe it, is, it, it, maybe it isn't actually hope at all. It just feels like that, but it's more just sort of like a distraction from the questions that the heart is asking. And I think the questions the heart is asking are only going to get answered like in the work mm-hmm. um, and, 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 you know, getting out there and doing something, whatever you, your whatever your vocation takes you toward in terms of that um and i think for me like for sapin city church we tend to think of it as an experiment i mean from the very beginning so this is it's meant to be experimental and, and i hope it never stops being experimental where um you know we actually give it a chance to fail we give these convictions a chance to come back um impotent um because the only way i think you're gonna like find out that the bedrock reality that that i think jesus is always talking about this kind of this kind of like the thing underneath everything, the bedrock reality of the kingdom, like you're, you're only going to like, your hope is going to grow when you do things that put you in actual contact with it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that being said, the hopeful, I think the reason I was of two minds about it is because I also have come to think that this might sound strange. Um, I also think there's something to be said for like, Oh man, I want to think about how to say this actually. Um, <laughs> There's something to be there's something to be said for um how about this if you actually are hopeless it does no good to pretend that you're not mm. you know what i mean and that's where the, you know i think um those early beatitudes like that poverty within you i call that blessed mm. 
mm. that grief that you that you're carrying i call that blessed right and i don't i don't think jesus is like fetishizing the fact that you're suffering mm. right i don't i don't think he's prescribing that we that we choose those things i think he just knows like um that actually paradoxically it's sort of like hopelessness leads to hope like when you let yourself go all the way down into the hopelessness that you might be wrestling with right now which i think in the world right now like i think um coming out of the pandemic but also like the just every day broadcast of gun violence or racialized mm. violence or whatever like hopelessness might be a sign that you're paying attention for a moment right mm. it's almost like there's like naivety is like the first layer that needs to get shed and then like you go from naivety into hopelessness and you kind of got to go through it you can't get around it again mm. you know so i'm all for doing hopeful things and i think that's um what we're talking about here i'm also all for like man mm. if the honest truth is that you're the at the deepest place inside if you look there and you don't find hope i think like you're not a failure and you're not going to fix it by it's not like fake it till you make it right it's mm. like you might have to descend all the way down into that depth mm. um and then you're going to find out like underneath that depth there is that bedrock Mm. of the kingdom that's that's still there but you you know what i mean you're not going to trust it and your heart's not going to know it until you go all the way down there right mm. yeah yeah that's um it's a it's definitely an important distinction of the typical like for people who see this micromanaging view of god in the world it's like god made you suffer therefore this and i'm like uh yeah well, the truth and the good part of those types of things is the fact that wisdom and transformation those spaces are filled with the potential for wisdom and transformation, suffering when your world breaks, et cetera. You also don't need a micromanaging God that did that to you. No, we live in a world where that happens. And within those spaces that we spend most of our lives trying to avoid are perhaps, and sometimes only the spaces that have enough potential to di so we can disidentify with old ways of thinking, old connections and attachments. We have to things, whatever it is that actually keeps us open enough and like what you're saying, long enough to trust the death far enough to not turn the lights on in our dark night of the soul, like Peter Owens would say, to not try to to not try to go around it. But if you stay there long enough, that's actually where the life is born. You know, you don't that's need it. a God to do that to you to say, that's well, right. this happened and now we're here. Yeah. And if, if you find something uh, fruitful, good or redemptive that comes from that dark night, you can thank God for that without needing to ascribe some kind of causation there, right? Yeah. 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 Cause that, that is the dangerous. And I always found, or maybe not always, but at some point have found and still do find very problematic and dangerous is when people are constantly interrogating God or trying to interrogate life to figure out why this mm -hmm. thing happened and why God did this. When the creative question is always what now, you know, and I th yeah, also why right. it keeps us in control. You know, why is a form of trying to gain control and mastery over the thing of, oh, well, now I can make sense of everything. It's like, no, you can grow through it without having to make sense of everything. It's just eventually you're like, it's just because this, there's this, all this is a part of it. Yeah, that's right. I, I, like, I'm not sure that a metaphysical diagram of cause and effect is, is really like what you need in those moments, right? But like, mm. uh, yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, in different ways I say this, but like, I really, really love pastors, you know, cause I felt that calling in my own journey in my twenties, you know, wrestled with it to a degree and 
tried to avoid it in some ways and eventually embraced it, you know, and started and led this church for 10 years. And, you know, it's pastors, their work happens at the intersection of the most challenging parts of the most difficult jobs there are, you know, like I'll tell like the, the, the emotional complexity of a, of a therapist, you know, the struggle and resilience of the startup, you know, the, the multidimensional relationships that come with friendships and workers and how that can get very messy, right? There's so many layers that makes it the constant cycle of loss of relationships of, Oh, we were really connected for two to three years and now you're moving and I'm happy for you. But also I look around, it's like every three, I felt like every two to three years I would look around my church and be like, I don't recognize this. That's so real. Yeah. And it's, I, I, I would have like, destabilizing moments preaching like looking out of faces being like where's everybody i knew yeah yeah and you're like can i do this again can i start again can i open my heart again am i just going through the motions like all of these things that are so hard we have had built into the flow of life it's not a place you go to sometimes it's within a flow and there's it's it's that's not an easy thing you know so i just i just love pastors who keep doing that work for so many reasons um Hey, can I ask what you? Are, no, yeah, go ahead. How do you how do you think about your vocation now? <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Um, I'll give you a really simple answer okay. of why I had no identity crisis or struggle moving on from our church, because I say an experience, not just say, but it's the embodied experience of the structure can change, but the substance can remain the same. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. forms of my life can change, but the flow within it is the same. So as I'm still, to be honest with you, in a transitional coming out of a liminal space, I can feel myself after 18, almost 18 months getting into the next thing. I'm like the forms and all of that is dead. I have to allow it to be born again. But who I am in my work of naturally wanting to be a guide for other people, caring about the creative work people have and wanting to help them liberate help them be more liberated to give that more freely and to continue my own creative work that still continues to do that. I'm like, it's the same Yeah, nice. to me. I'm like, I yeah. feel the same about it. And my role has changed, but the reality within which I do it remains. So for me, it's, it's, that's kind of how I see it. You know, it's like just less organizational leadership required. Cause I suck at that. And I'm like, Six years into leading a church, I would Google before a meeting that I'm supposed to lead. What do I do in a meeting? <laughs> um, that sounds familiar to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you know there are like when you you said in the intro that I read something about like not feeling fully quite at home in a church, you know, but still leading yeah. one. That's a fascinating thing, right? There's you know I have my own versions of that. And for me, in the unique way, I gave myself the permission to lead you know, imagine for so long, there are certain moments that I've experienced, things I've led, moments I've shared with people. I'm like, this makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. This is why pastoring for, this is for me in ways other people, this is what makes it all make sense for me. Um, What are like a couple, right? We're talking about embodiment and stories. What are a couple of those stories and experiences for you where you're like, man, this is like, for me, like, this is where it's at, you know? And I'll give, I'll, I'll tell you one story for me and give you a second to think about that. Mm-hmm. There's a, there was a, a young woman in our church had met her. I didn't know her too long, started coming around Easter. 
you know, picked up, okay, like, I don't know exactly how she identifies, but I would, through our interactions and what I see, think she's on the spectrum or like she's identifies as queer. I don't know exactly how specifically. And then it might have been right after Easter, we did baptisms. And when our, you know, the community's there, she brings family. We were just getting to know her and there's all these people there. And it was a moment where she came out publicly mm. for the first time in that gathering. And then with after her sharing her talk, got baptized right after. Oh, wow. And yeah. for me, that mm. image of the church is the welcoming committee. The church is the people who are, have invited you to the party. Yes, of course, the party, the substance of it is the divine. But through us, we are the open arms of God welcoming you into the kingdom of God, into life with God, etc. That's a moment where I'm like, this is this is what this is for me. And another funny one is, the only, besides my wife and I as co-founders, one of the only other people we ever had on staff, like part-time, very short, was like my best friend, Larry. He owns his own creative studio out here, but he was working, you know, with us and a part of the church. I don't know why, but I think, of course, his name is Larry. I don't know why that's the <laughs> <laughs> And in 2019, after the street art festival they do in our neighborhood here, the wrap-up show was an Eminem concert, like, at the stadium near us. You know, and I grew up huge Eminem era, like, that's all I know, every lyric. So him and I went, me, so here's the co-pastors of Imagine. We go, we have great seats. I snuck in a bottle of Hennessy and we were just <laughs> like watching the show, taking turns swigging. Like I'm not a heavy drinker. We're not drinking yeah. a ton, but just the fact that we're passing a bottle, taking swigs at this show, like the holistic experience of like, we're friends, we're enjoying, we lead, we care for people together. We create mm. together. This is just as much a part of when we're sitting with people and there's, to me, it's all one thing. And that was just a moment where I was like, this all makes sense to me right now, you know? Yeah. So for you in, yeah. in your church as a pastor, what are a couple of the stories where you're like, this is good. Like this, this, yeah. this brings it together for me. Um, and that's it. I love that question. Um, Uh, so the, I don't know why this is the first image that pops out and maybe, maybe you kind of inspired me with the story that you were telling. Um, and I think, I think I'll be able to do this in a way that's honoring to him, but, um, <laughs> one of my friends, one of our teammates, a guy named Zach, uh, Zach's a, a gay black man who, you know, grew up in his own version of a world, like, like the one I described, uh, you know, conservative, um, who he is, wasn't really admissible, um, uh, you know, in the church he grew up in and then uh, at the job that he had, he was actually working at the school that I, I went to for undergrad. Mm. And so, so here's the point. Um, he, he's just, it's just insanely talented worship leader. He was singing in Denver up there on stage. Um, so I, so for years I would go like guest preach at, um, at Bethel, this college here. Um, and he, he would lead in chapel. So I've seen Zach lead for years, lead music, right? And then Zach started leading worship um, with us after he left that environment and he was fully out and fully in his own skin. Um, and I, when I, when I tell you that, like, I almost physically fell over from like the power and the presence of Zach's voice and spirit on our stage. And I'd seen him lead for years. Mm but he was like a completely different person. And I mean, that's, I might overstate that, but I mean, the, the difference was night and day. And I, I talked to him about it and he's just like, yeah, what do you, he's like, what do you think happens to a person when they're not able to be themselves? And then what do you think happens when they can? 
And just to see the kind of power with which Zach shows up. Um, and, you know, he, he was going to find his way with or without us. He, he's, mm. he's, he's got the power of his own story there. But for us to get to be a community where he gets to show up fully and to see the difference there. Um, yeah, that, that strikes me really loud and mm. clear. So you're um, saying was it the first time after he had come out when he was leading? I don't I don't remember like the exact day. Like I, I just, around I that just time. remember I just remember like I've seen him lead in that environment and I've seen him lead in this environment. And chronologically it was that, then this. Mm. And chronologically it was, you know, not out, not able to own that, and then mm. here out and himself. And the the power of it is just staggering to me, man. And then you think about with with an artist like that, there's a very kind of visible expression of that. Mm. Um, but then you think about the version of that for every human being where mm. if church can become a place where, you know, you're, you're holistically and like deeply, um, welcome, not just, you know, lip service, but I mean like all the way, right. Uh, welcome in the deepest sense. And if that's going on inside people mm. in the same way that you kind of see it externally with Zach as a performer, um, I hope for that uh, a lot when I think about like what's even the point of trying to create this ecosystem that we call a church, right? Like what, what's meant to happen inside this ecosystem and just that flourishing that, uh, do you know that little book, um, the boy, the mole, the fox, the horse, have you seen this gorgeous mm-hmm. book that's been, um, it, you, you, dude, you gotta, you gotta check it out. It's this, it's this, um, animated book by this British author. It's, it's one of those that on one level, it's a kid's book on another level. It's kind of like the little prince. If you ever read that book, um, mm-hmm. Oh man, every little page is like proverbial, like, mm. um, well, uh, the reference might be too obscure to be helpful to people. Everybody should just go read the book. But there's, <laughs> a, there's this horse in the book who like, he whispers to the boy and he says, I have a secret to tell you. And he says, I, I can fly, but I stopped flying because it made the other horses jealous or something like that. Mm. And then in this really beautiful drawing, these like wings unfurl that were hidden in this horse wow. that, that you didn't know were there. And this just kind of expansive, um, thing happens and i don't know that to me is what um could happen for all of us Mm. if we find ourselves in in a an environment that's committed to love in a serious enough way right Mm. that's amazing yeah that's so good yeah the the environment to allow people like that's one of the things i would say all the time is like it's okay to be exactly where you are just right now, wherever that is, like when you were talking about going into the depths of suffering, you feel hopeless yet. You have to be where you are and no matter what, like that's where all this starts yeah. with resistance, withdrawing awareness, not naming and recognizing things for what they are. There's then there's all these, just these fragments and things in the shadows and you can't do it. And the fruit of an environment that allows that to happen is so powerful. That's right. You know, and, and Zach, I'll tell you, like, as you know, like, which says something about the community you create and about Zach, who who uh, Jason was just talking about. So we were at this gathering in Denver in like October. And I, I want to say it was November. You said October. I'm not sure. Uh, it might have been November. I don't, what is yeah, time? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and, you know, since since January, basically, like our when we announced our church was closing last January, it was going to go till it went till the end of May. But, uh, you know, the last however many week months was <clears throat> it wasn't liturgy it was just hey people come over our place we're eating drinking talking hanging out that's, that's it so i hadn't really been in any environment like that 
you know, for a long time up until that point. And even most of the, the years I'm leading, you know, I don't get to be present very often and just be present, which is a gift. Right. And I'm not the biggest like Christian worship, like listener. Um, but we were at this event and he sang this song. Um, the kingdom is yours. Yeah. I'd never heard it before. It was him, Aaron, and then another person from South Bend. Yeah. Mariah, Mariah Keener. Yeah. Okay. And Mariah and man, he allowed me to tap into my old school Pentecostal roots because I was like, man, I haven't raised a hand in worship in years, maybe. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I can feel myself getting emotional just telling this story. But I sat there with my hand raised, hearing that song, The Kingdom is Yours. And he just went he just, he just went off. Yeah. Like yeah, he still yeah. like, and I and someone had filmed it, you know, and I had I seen a little bit after. And that's that moment did something to me that I hadn't experienced in a long time. And that song became like the defining song for the background season of my life for the next maybe six months or so up until yeah. like, you know, three, four months. Like I told him that too, you know, one day I hit him up, was like, bro, like that, this I'm listening, like I'm listening to it or whatever, but man, that was a very powerful thing. And it's the, it's the community, it's the environment, but he, I was like, he's, that was special. What he yeah, just did. Yeah. That was really That's amazing. Right. So that doesn't, when you say you fell out, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I only heard him like once. And I was like, yeah. Oh, my yeah. favorite song ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, before we get into the book, you know, we live in a culture where, especially in sort of people ranging on the spectrum from like evangelical to post evangelical or not Christian people have gone through that machine in many ways. People who are outside of it are aware of it, you know, through publishing, through whatever. And to me, what was taking place 15, 20 years ago, uh, rethinking, reimagining, deconstructing, what was taking place on the margins in publishing and what you could see 15, 20 years ago has gotten closer and closer to the center. It's like the conversations that were happening in hallways and with your friends over beers 15 years ago are now everywhere all the time, even from pulpits, from preachers, from everywhere, because things have just gotten closer to the center. Right. Which I always laugh. I'm like, Oh, if you're here, you could read a Tony Jones book from 20 years ago, 50 <laughs> right, or whatever, right. you know, because yeah, yeah. to me, it's actually in, in stages of consciousness, it's stages of faith. It's the same movement. It's just a different time now, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a talk about worlds breaking, you know, that's tough for people, you know, for the first time, your own tradition is the object of examination. You're rethinking one thing, which allows you to rethink the next thing, which eventually leads you to rethink everything, questioning, doubting how that affects personal relationships, communal participation. It's tough. And I've, you know, I feel, you know, that's real for people right now. It's so real. And I can look back at say 20 and say, man, those first sermons I ever heard, those were so important for me. I needed to, I was, I mean, first of all, they're the first sermons I heard really, but I'm like, man, those were so powerful. And if you look at spectrum from A to Z, I'm like, they were helping me move from B to C. Loved them. So important. And what's fascinating is 15 years later now, or however long it's been, I say, huh, 
not only would those sermons not be helpful for me right now, but I actually would disagree with a lot of the conclusions that they were operating with in the moment. And yet mysteriously, they were the very thing I needed at that step to move one step further. Right. I, I say that because how do for people who are moving through that in their own way and struggling to find hope, struggling to stay connected as they keep giving themselves the permission to grow and evolve, how do people continue continue to how can we question or disagree with the conclusions that our former mentors and leaders come to while not questioning their faithfulness and even honoring their oh, faithfulness? Yeah. You know, how yeah. do we do that well? You know, do you have any thoughts on because I think you you were a part of a church for a long time? How That's do right. we keep going? As far yeah. as this really takes us, this, as far as the spirit will lead us into the truth, but also maintain and not be angry at or against old ways of thinking and the people who helped lead us back then. Yeah, I love that question, man, because I think it's actually something that I grieve a little bit in what I see um, that, that it's really easy right now for a lot of us to cast aspersions back on those prior communities and experiences and voices. Um, and I think one reason it grieves me is I think, um, the, the way that it lacks self-awareness about the fact that like, you're also located in a certain place today. Mm. And the idea Mm. that like, you could sort of, when I say back in the kind of chronologically or developmentally that you could look back in that kind of like dismissive judgment and not recognize that I hope to God there'll be a day when you're not where you are today. And mm. you're just like setting yourself up to like, what, what kind of construct are you creating that says that you're going to, you know, you're going to pick a location and then look down on it in judgment, knowing that we're all on a path. Right. Mm. Um, I think there's something to be said for like, um, tap into as much gratitude as possible for the good they did for you. And, and for the step they kind of helped you take, you know, I think, I mean, to even express gratitude, right? Like to go out of your way and like do the work of saying thank you, I think would be a really big deal. Even if maybe you write the letter and if you're really honest, like it's 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 almost adjacent to like praying for your enemies. Meaning you may not feel this prayer, you may not, you may not even like believe this prayer today, but if you keep praying that prayer, your heart might turn. And maybe in a similar sense, if you practice saying thank you to those people, even if it's in your own spirit without talking, like I think just that act might begin to kind of help you reconnect with the way that they were actually a channel of, of grace in your life, a channel of God in your life. Right. Like, um, I think it's super important that we do that. Uh, mm. the, the, um, uh, I hope this isn't too theoretical. Um, for a long time I wrestled with what is it? This, and this is a false choice, by the way. This is, you know, you do it philosophically to force yourself to think. Here's the, here's the false choice. Are, are, are humans like in their sinfulness or in our brokenness or whatever, are we more, which error are we more likely to commit? Are we more likely to point of something that is of God and say it isn't? Or to point of something that isn't of God and say it is? And I think a lot of the world I came from said in our brokenness and our sin, the problem is we're too inclusive, Right. That mm-hmm. sin makes you to include, you know, you, you point to things that are not of God and you say there are, they say that's bad and we do that all the time. But I, I really, if I had to like land on this today, I, I think the thing that's most broken about us is that we often point at things that are of God mm. and we say they're not mm. right. 
we do that with the way we divide our, our species, right? We do that with the way we say like, you know, um, um, things that don't look like me or people who don't act like me, like they're out. Um, and in my reading of like the entire arc of scripture is that, you know, whether it's like Luke four and Jesus, you know, he preaches the good news from Isaiah and says, Jubilee is happening. It's fulfilled in your hearing. And they're all thrilled about it at first. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, Oh, they threw him off the cliff because he had the audacity to say that the Jubilee is happening. Like, no, that's not what happened. He reads, he reads the, you know, the year, uh, the, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right. And they all say, awesome. Isn't this Joseph's son? Hometown boy is going to be the hero. And then he's like, yeah, but the miracles that you're going to, that you want to see are going to be performed for Gentiles. It's like, he's, he's like, he's poking them and he's saying that, yes, God is at work here, mm. but the thing that's going to keep you from participating in it is the narrow lines that you've drawn around the location mm. of God's activity. And I think for all mm. of us who look back kind of disparagingly at those people, we're doing the same damn thing, right? Mm. We're still thinking that we can kind of divide the world um, between the people and the places where God is at work and where God is and thinking that somehow we're going to get further to where, where we want to go by doing that. And I just think, have we not learned anything? Mm. about like from where we've come from to to stop playing that game um mm. so then conversely to be to be the kind of people who can see god you know when jesus says blessed are the pure in heart they will see god i take that to be in, in in the cynicism of this current moment for him to give a blessing for those who still have a capacity to see god mm. in the world in your neighbor in your enemy in that preacher at that conservative church who you, you, you see all the harm that that theology did today, but you've forgotten that in the moment where it found you, it moved you, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, to go back and see God, I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of ranting now. No, uh, I, yeah. think it's really important. I don't get to hear sermons at all. So, you know, give it to me, dude. I appreciate <laughs> it. That was good. I'm yeah. like, Luke for my damn, I have to add that into my next book. I do have to credit Jason. I'll figure it out later. <laughs> Cause I'm definitely the first person who's come up with that analysis. No. <laughs> No, that's, and you know, for me, if you even zoom out like further, I think for me, one of the things that keeps me sane and keeps me light, you know, and keeps me filled with joy and enjoying this world in the midst of, as a person who has all kinds of critiques that I've been saying for 15 or 20 years or whatever, is everyone's just trying their best. That's right. That's right. The pastor across, like literally across the street from my house and from the church I used to lead, the pastor who sits down two young guys he used to know from my church to make sure they're okay because they're a part of Imagine. Yeah. Yeah, sure. My ego can contract a bit and be like, you know, feel offended, but he's actually in his mind, there's an inner logic there and he's, he's trying to protect them. That's right. Yeah. He's now to me, the how he's doing it, I think is problematic and un- unnecessary and perhaps can become a barrier towards their growth. I can say that, but yeah. at the same time, be like, I get it. Yeah, yeah. That's what it's you should do. That's what you should yeah, that's right. do. In his that's, inner in his right. world, and there's an inner yeah. logic. And within that, that is a faithful and a good thing to do. The yeah. the framework's the problem, and I'll say that, but he's actually being caring for them. That's cool. You know, yeah, you, you, you could even say love is being mediated through that framework. Absolutely. Yeah, even I'm if like, it's being sort of twisted through that frame it's still love that's trying to express itself through that exactly the the depth of love is always filtered through all these layers lenses that we have and i'm like the layers and the lenses turn that love into something that i think is actually counterproductive towards these kids growth but the heart of it i'm like that's good that's if you yeah. want an uncle like person to look out for you what young man doesn't want that you know yeah, so i right. can be like here's what i think about it but also like i get it you know, yeah. and I'm even 
even the most distorted, convoluted, dangerous things people say, if you could trace them down, there's some sort of an intention, whether it's survival, whether it's this, there's some, there's some good intention beneath it. It gets filtered through so much fear and whatever it is that sure, when it comes up, it's dangerous and we can label it as such. We don't have to sugarcoat that. I can call it out, but at the same time, be like that person's just doing their best. What they're saying, I have issues with, but who they are, it's like they're, we're the same. We're both yeah. trying to do our best here. So that simple thing, that universal compassion for all people who are just doing their best to be human in a world that oftentimes makes it feel very difficult just to do that. I'm like, it's cool, dude. You can hate on me all you want. I'm fine. Like yeah, I'm chilling, right. dude. I'm not worried about it. So uh, the book. The book. Yeah. When the world breaks, which already organically, naturally, we're already in some of those places, right? In this conversation, you know, because it's not us. The book is the title from what I hear. It's not something that's like experienced outside of our normal. Like, no, this is a part of the very flow of all of our lives, you know, that you may go in and out of, you know, it's, right. it's something you will experience in different ways. Um, you ask the question in the book, what happens when the fundamental picture of reality we've relied on falls apart? So let me begin with this. What for you is the deep creative engine for this book, right? Like as an artist, as a creative, where I've always identified with that, even as my work was primarily pastoring, um, I'm always fascinated by that, you know, creative conception, right? You know, it's it's really fascinating. You can watch a whole movie and right at the crescendo, there's one line that they say, your eyes fill up with tears and you're like, that's a sermon that's or a, that's yeah. a chapter or that's a book or that's a song, right? There's this interesting thing that happens when we do that. So what is the engine that's giving all of the life for the for this book, the soil that it sort of grows out of for you? Yeah, I mean... um, that story I told you about going over to Israel, Palestine in 2010, um, I, I, w I was despairing mm. in the middle of that trip. It was, it was dark for me. Um, and I was actually kind of ruminating on this mantra. It was a dark mantra. Uh, and I hadn't, I hadn't like actively chosen it. It kind of, it just sort of, it became a script. You're, you're walking through the same streets Jesus was on and Jason said, he's like, nothing matters. Nothing matters. <laughs> Well, my, my mantra was, there's no way this gets better. Mm. There's no way this gets better. There's no way this gets better. And I'm like, I don't like that, but man, wow. it keeps rattling around. Wow. Um, yeah. And then one day on that trip, uh, we were in the church of a Palestinian elder. They call him Abuna Shakur, Elias Shakur. He's a Melkite priest over there. Uh, he's an old man who's, he's kind of a legend. He's like been nominated by the Nobel for the Nobel Peace Prize. And, uh, we walked into his church, um, and the steps that it, it's up on a hillside and, and the steps that you actually walk up to get into the church, they're, they're engraved with the Beatitudes. And I kind of walked right over them. I just didn't really pay much attention to them. Uh, in the church, um, the Melkite tradition, the, their sacred architecture, it's, it's a little bit like a Catholic or an Orthodox church. Um, so a lot, a lot of religious iconography everywhere. And I'm, I'm just kind of broken and sad and confused. And I, I just feel kind of drawn to this. Uh, particular icon. Um, it's a brown skinned man. Uh, and everything's written in Arabic in the church, which makes sense. They speak Arabic. Um, and I asked somebody who worked at the church, you know, who's that icon? And they said to me, Jesus. And I was like, Oh, 
Because yeah. I'm used to, you know, I'm used to Western European Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, okay. And, and but, I, you know, so I, I kept feeling this thing. And Jesus is holding up, um, as is the case often in sacred iconography, he's holding up, you know, a text, presumably like the Bible or whatever, and it's open to a page. And again, written in Arabic as a phrase. And I asked the person, what's, you know, what's it say? And they said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I was like, mm. I was like, oh, yeah. And like, I don't know about, like for me, like, you know, I grew up in churches that had a very traditional evangelical reading of that text. It was like, this is how we know that Jesus is how you go to heaven when you die. Right. Um, but I think because that mantra had been ruminating in my head for so long, there's no way this gets better. There's no way this gets better. Um, that word way, it just kind of popped to me differently. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember going back to my hotel room that night and I had the same Bible I'd been traveling with for like a decade, maybe it's like my personal Bible, my preaching Bible. It's got all my little notations in it and everything. And um, I turned to Matthew five where those beatitudes are. And it's just, prist- it's untouched. It's just pristine. And I kind of realized I'd been trafficking through these pages for 10 years and never, mm. never sat with those. And so I sat with them for a minute and um, I think it wasn't even like cognitive for me. It was like deep down in my belly somewhere, this, feeling that, that Jesus was actually like describing a kind of like the terrain of reality. Mm. Um, and mm. there was like this, like memory in me that I couldn't pin down, which is like, I'm reading it in the context of geopolitical conflict and, you know, militaries and violence. Um, and then it was like, um, over the next few days that I realized that it, it every, everything rhymed with my own experience of that hospitalization and that depression, that very, very personal psychological trauma I was dealing with, that this geopolitical stuff rhymed with it. It's not the mm. same, but there's like these, you know, these resonance layers. And then lastly, it also, all of that rhymed with, I had, um, at the time this was happening, a very person, very, very close to me and matters deeply to me was deep in the throes of addiction. Mm. And a lot of days I literally didn't know if he would be dead or alive. Um, and we were kind of living through that really complicated cycle. If you've ever been in a relationship with an addict, you know, it can go from like, but my version of the cycle was um, he would throw up the flare and maybe I kind of felt like I had to try to rescue him. So I, I try mm. to rescue him. Then he would be present in my life, but I would feel unsafe with him. Mm. And then we would kind of split paths and then there'd be like radio silence mm. and then the pattern and then rescue and then protect myself and then radio silence. Mm. And re- mm. So anyway, um, so that's 2010, man. And I, I probably spent the next five years, just like it was rattling around inside me that something here is being described. And it's not like, it's not like Jesus is prescribing how to be a good person. And it's not. Um, and then I finally was studying Buddhism in grad school. And we talked about Buddhist cones that a good, a good Buddhist teacher will give you a, tr- a paradox that can't be solved because it's not meant to be a rational process. Right? Mm. It's meant to lead you beyond that. And I began to read these, these beatitudes as a little bit more like cones, like these kind of mm. paradoxes that are, they're not prescriptions. They're not directives. There's something more mysterious than that. Um, and somewhere near the phrase, when the world breaks, just like mm. erupted in me. And I like, you know, those big post-it notes you used to write, those, uh, I've got them right there uh, <laughs> hanging on my wall. I just kind of, in my dining room, I just wrote when the world breaks and slapped it up mm. there. And that was, that's probably 20, I, it's been like nine or 10 years or something like that, that I, that phrase then, I was like, I think I have to write a book about this for my own mm. sake, if for nobody mm. else's sake to, to work out what these beatitudes are really doing in me right now. You know? mm. Mm. Yeah. It's a great title. Mm, so how, how, when did you actually start writing it? 
Oh, how do you answer that question? Um, like, I like actually, okay, let me, let me rephrase yeah. that. When did you actually start typing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. I, I actually buckled down and developed the proposal, like the outline and, you know, wrote two of the chapters uh, in 2021. Okay. Yeah. So like during like pandemic. Yeah. Did yeah. that, did that, did the pandemic and what was happening accelerate yes. inform, you know, what was already happening within you with, with this and your own experience and what you were trying to say? Yeah. I think, I think the pandemic was one major factor in kind of realizing the the gestation period is coming to an end. It's time, like, you know, this thing has been gestating inside for so long. And I think, um, when the pandemic hit and like, I literally have that when the world breaks written on this big post-it note and you're looking at that and you're reading the news and you're thinking like, I think it's time to buckle up and, you know, buckle down, I guess. And, uh, mm-hmm. and put this, put this thing on, on paper. Mm. Mm. So, so 2021, you really start working through it, but it's been, in, it's been with you. Yeah, that's right. Like the work, the substance, you know, how this, how what you're writing about has been even taking place in your own life. Yeah, even, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, what I started, what I started doing years prior to 2021 was I would be in places. um, This came up in uh, the West Bank on another trip with another group. This came up in Belfast, um, working with an organization called Corey Mila, who does um, conflict work in in Northern Ireland. I keep discovering these little moments where I'm asked to like deliver a brief word or whatever in a kind of pastoral sense. And I kept discovering that I I, I kind of slowly developed this kind of riff on the Beatitudes. It's like a succinct sort of, you know, there's eight blessings there and I kind of have a, you know, a kind of protracted rendering of each blessing that I just kept kind of working out in these settings where people are like, Hey Jay, can you just like say something for five minutes before we do Mm. the Eucharist here? you know, in, in the West bank or, um, you know, we're in Belfast and it's stories, um, from the troubles. It's sort of a storytelling night at a pub there where people are telling about, you know, living on different sides of, of the conflict walls in Belfast, um, during those periods. And it's like, Hey Jay, can you offer a word at the end of that? And I'm like, what? I, I'm like, I, I almost feel like a fool, like this American being asked to stand up and speak at the end of this really, mm-hmm powerful storytelling, but you're like, I, th- I think I'm supposed to just keep working out these beatitudes and just sort of, again, you know, put, finding other words for the same blessings and trying to help people feel the way that they're ushering them into the kind of reality that Jesus wants us to get ushered into with those words. So that's the other way it was traveling with me was like, it literally kind of a, a rendering of the beatitudes in kind of short form, um, kept getting called for, mm. called out of me, you know? Mm. You know, in the, in some of the promotional material, it says, you know, this book is a meditation on those teachings. I, I think re- in reference to the Beatitudes, yeah. it, this book is a meditation on those teachings as a transformative way forward when we yeah. suffer. Yeah. What, how, what is a healthy kind of relationship that we need to have with suffering? in order to move forward through suffering well, right? There's a relationship there, you know, what, what are some of the contours? We talk about friendship, you know, it's, you know, loyalty and trustworthiness and these, it was how we relate to each other. What is some of the defining marks of our relationship with suffering that kind of allows the container 
to form so we can move through it well? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I think that the single biggest word to me is um, we have to consent mm. to the inner experience of our suffering, whether you like it or not. Now, I'm not talking about accommodating the circumstances of our suffering. Like, I'm, this is not a call for resignation, right? This is not about not protesting and not resisting and not trying to fight for a better world. This is not about not trying to heal. But I think the inner, like when, when the world breaks, like when you, whether it's personal or geopolitical or the thing that happens in your neighborhood or your marriage, like when you suffer, stuff happens inside, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Jesus is describing. And when he says like the poverty in your spirit, those who mourn, um, when you when you are screaming inside for things to be made right, that hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. And I, I think the reason he blesses those experience, the, those inner experiences, it's because he's trying to help us consent to that because i don't i don't think you can until we consent to it we're running from mm, it right mm, which mm. means we're just going to perpetuate it we're we're, we're going to put the very thing out into the world that we're trying to defeat which is part of the paradox there right it's like you actually have to consent to the inner experience so that you can stop perpetuating it for others and then i'm not the first a lot of commentators in the last two thousand years have noted that there seems to be a turn from the first four beatitudes to the second four like the first four, they, they don't really describe much relationship with other people. They're really just these kind of inner experiences, right? Mm. Um, and then the second four, now he starts talking about being merciful, being a peacemaker. How do you see the world around you? And then being persecuted. And I take that persecution blessing to be bizarrely the most promising blessing Jesus gives because I think evil is a limited resource. Mm. And so I think if evil actually comes after you, it's actually a sign that you've been kind of transformed. Like, mm. I just don't think evil is going to waste time with you if you're living a kind of limp, impotent life. You know, I think, um, yeah, and there's a lot of people shouting about trying to make things better in the world. And some of it's really beautiful and powerful and some of it's just noise. Mm. And I think um, then there are lives that have, have actually rooted themselves so deeply in reality, like capital R reality. Mm. Yeah, evil, there's a couple. Yeah evil's got to come after you, right? So I, I, in those little eight blessings, I actually see Jesus like the first, he starts by talking to people who are just like despondent in what they've suffered, right? He just speaks to people who in some ways are living the most disempowered lives, but somehow by the end of it, without switching audiences, he gives a blessing that's only fitting for people who are powerful, mm, right? Interesting. Like, in the best sense, right? Like, um, mm. Yeah, so I, I I think the arc presumes that you can be transformed, and the arc begins with consent. I think you mm. have you have to consent to these things within you that you're wrestling with. I think mm, yes, yeah, it's perhaps the most challenging thing for people, and yet you know the most liberating in a personal and spiritual sense. A couple of things come up when you say that one. You know, the great mirror by star says, "You know what you do during a, when you when, during a spiritual meltdown." melt <laughs> good good that's right <laughs> which that's is it. the consenting that's it that's it you know and that's to me so much of our work as christians as human beings and you see even with more clarity for contemplatives and for mystics is making is making one out of two it's making one out of all the different fragments and one of the barriers that gets in the way of, I think, that non-dual mind and experiencing for re sensing reality first and foremost as one thing before we split it into all these other things is the struggle and what feels like the impossibility to consent, which is to accept 
the suffering that you're describing. You know, like that's why I would tell people when it comes to suffering, you don't have to learn to enjoy it, but you do have to learn to accept it. That's it. It's not good in and of itself. It's hard. It's tragic. We've all experienced those things, but the mystery and in that impossible space of what, like to me, I'm just describing more of like what the consenting you're saying feels like is how do I embrace wholeheartedly this is a podcast that's only audio but if you could see me my hands are out like you're embracing somebody how do i embrace take in and feel the suffering with just as much of an open heart as i do a good thing that right there is how a lot of this starts to be put together you don't have to enjoy it but how can i accept it and take it into me with just as much welcoming as i do the the good things that happen you know the the consenting is everything and it's and that's and back to your question about hope it it's you know we get this guarded posture right and then you you open up that guardedness you 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 let in the thing that's already in you right like the grief the loss it's already in you but you let it in right and i think the hope is like you find out it actually didn't destroy you Mm -hmm. right the the thing that you thought you had to protect yourself from you let down those defenses, you let it come in, and then you find that you're not only are you okay, mm-hmm. you're bigger on the other side of it, mm-hmm. you're braver on the other side. And then and then hope grows because you're like, well, then the next time I suffer, you've got a little muscle memory inside that says, well, the last mm-hmm. time that happened and we decided that we weren't going to, you know, nar- narcotize ourselves and numb out or, you know, project it out into the world, but instead we were going to consent to it, accept it. Um, again, I'm not talking about accepting the circumstances a lot of things should be resisted a lot of mm. you should walk away from, so i just want to be really careful about this because what i'm saying could be misconstrued i think as a really toxic theology whether it's like people in abusive relationships or people um in systems that are like i'm not talking about accepting the, the the circumstances of your suffering right i'm talking about consenting to the inner experience of it that's already with you whether you like it or not right mm-hmm. um but yeah, but also that, that that well, and those disclaimers are important because acceptance can sound like passivity. That's right. Yeah, and that's not what we're talking about here at all. And that's yeah. the great mystery of like the first step towards if you want to change the world, you know what you have to let go of. You need to change the world. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then once you do that, yeah. now you can change the world. It's yeah. just without the ego compulsion to do it for the sake of your own wholeness. I'm not changing the world to somehow give me something I don't have. I, out of what I already have, am committing to change the world, not out of my own ego compulsion to convince myself things are okay when they're not, but out of a genuine compassion that says, now that I've accepted the world as it is and all of her brokenness, I now can return to the work of transforming her, not for my sake, but for the sake of others. And that's a that's the difference between us doing something out of compulsion and doing it out of genuine compassion. You know, yeah, it's like, right. the, what's the best the push and pull of relationships. I'm trying to get you to change and you're trying to get me in. It's just put the moment I finally can fully accept and include you. Doesn't mean I condone everything you do as good, but the moment I can accept the whole of you in a loving way, all of a sudden the ecosystem of a relationship is best conducive towards you actually changing because I don't need you to do it for the sake of me. That is, that's the like heart of what you're getting at with the disclaimer, which is important because it can sound like you don't care. When that's not the case. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, and there's nothing it? holy. There's nothing holy about, you know, a woman staying inside an abusive marriage. There's nothing holy about a uh, a black man just accepting 
what our society does to him, right? There's nothing holy about that kind of acceptance, right? That's what but conversely, there's nothing holy about running from your woundedness or denying your own pain. There's nothing holy about white knuckling your way through life, um, trying to keep at bay the difficult parts of being human, right? There's nothing holy about that either. So, yeah. Yeah. There's something about growing spiritually for people who are Enneagram five with a four wing, which we both are, where it's like, this is all I want to talk about. <laughs> it's yeah. like to me, cause this is it, you know, I'm like, it's really hard. And if you go all the way through it, you're going to be okay. It's like, that's pretty much all I ever want to say to people in different <laughs> right. ways. Cause you're that's like, right. that's all it is, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like the creative work, the life-giving stuff, what you create, I'm like, that will come to me. I'm like, but this part where people get stuck, I'm like, this is where I naturally want to lead people through. So, uh, yes, I am going to make sure I release this right around the time that you announced. So it's building up, you know, to to when the book's coming out. So um, we'll make sure that happens. Mm -hmm. How can people tuning in become more aware of, your work, work you've already put out into the world and what you're still doing today. Where are the best places for them to tap in with you? Oh, thanks for asking, man. Uh, South and City Church is easy to find. And sometimes that's my voice in the podcast, others that you also want to hear too. Um, so South and City Church, easy to find. Me personally, uh, Instagram's like the one social feed that I, I try to stay present on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just Jason Adam Miller on Instagram. And the book will be easy to find. Um, you know, in the kind of ramp up to the release, just look for Jason Adam. A lot of Jason Millers out there. There's a sorcerer named Jason Miller who writes books. Nice. On modern sorcery. That's that's not me. Yeah, yeah. There's an <laughs> MMA fighter with a sketchy. They're all, they're all, they're all damn it's Kev. They're, they're all, we know Kev, Kev is very open, but damn, who's he having with the podcast? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But Jason Adam Miller ought to point you in the right direction. That's cool. There's a there's an author on Amazon that's also Kevin Sweeney, and it's like weird like necrophiliac like novels oh, no. i'm like oh god <laughs> you should have used I'm a like, pen name for those we books need man. to create a distinction of kevin t sweeney not just yeah. kevin sweeney oh that's amazing cool man yeah if um you know for people tuning in who you know still would say in the midst of your own growth change evolution struggle with the church are still desiring to be connected with the church this is why I wanted to have pastors on because it isn't just writers from a distance who are talking about these things, but it's people who are living, embodying, and still leading the church through these things and into the future. And Jason's one of those people who's I think is doing that so well. So tap in with his work. Um, you will know when the book's coming out to be able to check in with that. And uh, yeah, man, I appreciate you taking the time. This was so I loved good. it, man. Thank you, man. Uh, this this means a lot. Great, man. Cool. Thanks, Jason. <laughs>